Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. We're back this week with another episode and I know they've been coming out on weird days lately with the holidays going on and schedules being all screwed up, but we were able to squeeze one last episode in before 2017 comes to a close. I hope everyone out there had a good holiday, a good Christmas, and I hope you're satisfied with your New Year's Eve plans as well. I'm kind of still at the age where I'm sort of obligated to go out and celebrate and spend too much money and stay out too late with a bunch of friends, but for those of you out there who are laying low i'm honestly kind of jealous of you having that low-key nye and just kind of hunkering down um especially with all these bowls going on and and staying up late and watching all these bowls so it's going to be a uh, pretty sleepless week and weekend but either way i hope everyone uh has a good weekend and end of their holiday season because winter is here and it is no joke uh it's sub-zero in the midwest here and probably near where you're listening as well if you're in the big 10 footprint And we'll probably be in for some dark and cold few months here as reality kind of sets back in as we uh, put the holidays behind us. So hopefully this episode can take your mind off what are likely still some pretty nasty temperatures and weather outside. And we've got a great guest who joined me for this episode in studio. It's BTN's very own studio analyst, Rick Pizzo. He's a 10-year veteran of the network. And as I enjoy doing with sports media professionals on the show. We got into his background a little bit before shifting to some more lighthearted discussion about sports media and life in general. And then we finally wrapped up with some bowl talk, which I definitely wanted to cover to at least some degree as they stacked up here at the end of this week. And instead of doing more individual game breakdowns with Rick, we kind of talked about the bigger picture of some of these programs and the potential implications of wins, losses, and what it all means for these teams and the conference at large. And since this is the end of the year, I got Rick to reflect on 2017 a bit, just to close things out, get some of his best memories, best moments from the year as we uh, get ready to move to 2018 here. So before we get to that interview with Mr. Pizzo, just a couple of reminders. First off, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show if you haven't already. Do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbean, where the podcast is found. And also, we do still have a coupon code going on the btn.com store under the store or shop tab online on our website where you can find uh, you know your, your usual merchandise and bowl gear as well up there among all the normal, uh, normal clothes and uh, other merchandise on that website. So coupon code is TAKE10, that's capital T-A-K-E, the number one and zero. And you can use that to take 10% off your order on that btn.com store. So with all that behind us, let's get to the Take 10 podcast interview with BTN's own Rick Pizzo. All right. I'm very pleased to be joined by BTN studio host, analyst Rick Pizzo. Follow him on Twitter at BTN Rick Pizzo. Rick, been here about a year and a half now, admired your work from afar, and have been meaning to get you on the podcast. So welcome on. Glad to have you. Thank you, Alex. Good to be here. And uh, I know you got a list of hard-hitting, journalistically, you know, very integrity-based questions that you're going to fire at me. So I'm going to try to try to live up to the answers because I know the questions are probably going to be better than the answers. Absolutely. You're in the uh, you're in the hot zone now. You're in Beautiful. the hot seat. I love it. Let's so do it. Get ready. All right. So first off, um, for anyone that's listening to the podcast, I generally like to get into the backgrounds when I have sports media personalities, professionals on. I know you have a unique story, and it's something that a lot of people out there might not know. So before we even get to how you got to BTN, I want to hear how you got into the sports journalism, sports broadcasting industry uh, in the first place. 
So I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York, a small liberal arts school, and part of the reason that I went there was because they had a Division three hockey program. I was a decent high school player, but not good enough to play at the Division one level. And so I, I went to Hamilton, and after three years, as much as I loved it, realized that the career was certainly going to end after one more year, and so I just decided to cut it short a year. And with the support of some other friends who were interested in doing it, I launched the first play-by-play of Hamilton College hockey. We did some football and basketball as well, but our main focus was hockey, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, Hamilton didn't offer a broadcast program, so to speak. We had public speaking, and I was involved in that, but I just didn't have the background to, to get a job. So I remember my senior year in my room, and I was putting together audio tapes of the play-by-play that I had done for the hockey team with a little wallet-sized photo of myself that I had taken at the drugstore. And I was mailing these to actual broadcast entities, TV stations, and I just, now that I think about what I was doing and after having been in the business, I just howl because I know that there are general managers and news directors getting this tape and looking at the picture, and it was almost like one of those stupid high school pictures, you know, where you have like your chin on your hand folded over backwards. Um, so one of the news directors was nice enough to write me back and basically say, if you do not have a tape, something that shows you on TV, you'll never get a job. So figure out a way to do it. I got an internship at a local station and a guy steered me towards grad school, ended up getting into Syracuse, uh, but I couldn't afford it. So I deferred for a year and sold wine in Boston and basically took every dime that I made and put it in a little kitty and uh, got myself back into grad school. Got a broadcast degree from Syracuse, and then that's kind of how I launched into the uh, into the actual working world of broadcast. Yeah, we got to dig that portrait up of you somewhere. It's got to make the rounds. Yeah, it's. Sh- I probably found as many of them as I could, and either burned them or cut them up into four million pieces. But yeah, you could probably grease some palms and find one or two of them still floating out there somewhere. I'll send a similar notice out to all those uh, sports directors on the East Coast. Unfortunately, in social media, somebody might actually send <laughs> one back. So you uh, you went to Syracuse, like, you know, nobody does that in sports. No, sports, nobody. <laughs> sports journalism. But yeah, you went to Syracuse. So I was going to ask about that because uh, you said you were steered toward grad school, and I feel like that's not, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's not something that a whole lot of people that jump into the sports broadcasting industry do. So what were the yep. advantages of going to grad school? Why were you steered toward well, that direction? Well, I, I think for me, and, and you know, when, when people were interested in getting into the on-air part of broadcasting, ask me about that a lot. Would you do it again? I'm 50-50 on it. And I know Syracuse has a great reputation. It was a hands-on broadcast school, so we did full newscasts, and we played all different roles, reporter, anchor, weather, sports. But at the same time... If I had it to do over, I would do more on the internship aspect Mm -hmm. because while grad school was really helpful, if I had stuck with the internship, maybe I would have saved myself whatever it costs to go to school, but you also get that same real-world experience. Now, that being said, Syracuse allowed me to meet enough people so that that was how I got my first job, was one of my classmates who had previously got a job recommended to the sports director at a station in Florence, South Carolina that had an opening that he should contact one of her former classmates, who was me from Syracuse. So the connections definitely helped. But, you know, if there's somebody that's debating between grad school and not doing grad school, wanted to get into the area of 
of the on-air part of the broadcasting business, I would just say try to examine other options first. Like if, if you decide that it's really what you want to do, it can't hurt you. But writing the checks to pay back the student loan hurts for a long time. Sure. And you mentioned you got that first job. Uh, you stayed out east, correct, for uh, your first couple of jobs. Yeah, southeast. Where were they? Where were yeah. they? And uh, give me a sense of the kind of gigs they were. So the first one, I got hired in a split market. It's Florence, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina by WBTW. It's the CBS affiliate. And the main station was in Florence with a satellite office in Myrtle Beach. So... As a 24-year-old single male, Myrtle Beach sounds fantastic. Absolutely. Florence, not so much. It's about an hour and 15 minutes away up Highway 501, but it might as well be a lifetime away Mm -hmm. because it is much more. Now, I'm a northeastern guy, grew up in New York and Vermont, and so it was a little bit of a culture shock to move to the south, much less so in Myrtle Beach, but it's fully the south in Florence, South Carolina. So there was an adjustment there for me. And, yeah, you leave Syracuse and you have these grandiose dreams. You're going to be covering the NFL. And you're going to, the only professional sport I covered for a long time was NASCAR mm-hmm. because it was huge down there. Now, we did, obviously, some college stuff with South Carolina and Clemson as well. But a lot of it was high school sports. I mean, that was one of our biggest focus. High school football on Friday night in the South was as big as it got. And so that was our focus. Uh, I got very lucky because after living in Florence for, I think, about four months – the Atlanta Braves decided to place their Carolina League affiliate, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, in Myrtle Beach. There you go. And we needed a sports presence, so I jumped up and down and uh, was lucky enough to get transferred down to Myrtle Beach. So I spent two years in Myrtle, fantastic time, worked on the golf game, worked on getting myself better on air, and then I moved on to my second job, which was in Greensboro, North Carolina. All right, tell me about the job in Greensboro then, and then how that job led to the unlikely hiring of you here at BTN. Yeah, Greensboro was a great place to live. Uh, I was there for almost seven years. Uh, My wife and I had been married when we were in Myrtle Beach, and shortly after we got married, I got the job in Greensboro, just about six months, and covered a lot of the same stuff, but then we did get to transition into covering some pro sports. We covered the Carolina Panthers, so I got the NFL experience as well. And we bought our first house in Greensboro. My son was born in Greensboro. I thought that I was entrenched there for a little longer than I was. Really nice place to live. Good pace of life. Cost of living. And then the next thing I know, a guy who I was trying to get to represent me as my agent calls me out of the blue. And he says, hey, Rick, uh, Matthew Kingsley, you were interested in maybe, you know, working with me. I said, yeah. And he said, well, I have a very interesting offer for you. There's a new startup in Chicago called the Big Ten Network, and and they want to interview you. And I said, I don't don't understand. We haven't even talked. How how has this happened? So to make a long story short, what happened was I sent him my resume reel with the intention of hoping to get a representative. His editor mistakenly thought that I was already a client and put my tape on the back end of a reel of 10 other clients that he had that were auditioning at the Big Ten Network. Sure. It came to the then executive producer here at BTN and he called Matthew back and said, I'm interested in Rick Pizzo. And I'm sure that while I don't know the exact conversation that went on, there was a pause and then a, (laughs) let me get back to you on that. 
So we made an agreement that I would come here and that if I were lucky enough to get the job, he would officially be my representative. I came here. I auditioned on a Thursday. I got called the following Tuesday. It was late in the game, July of 2007. And I was offered the job and told, you have 10 days to get here to start auditions. I mean, you know, everyone talks about their break, but like that is a, that's a break. That's a break. And I'm just curious, what do you attribute that to? Like, is that just luck or is that like something that was just like, you know, meant to be for you or how do, personally, how do you look at yeah, an event I, like that? I, I am a believer in destiny and fate. And I do believe, you know, sometimes you make your own luck and I had worked really hard on my tape and, and I thought it was really solid. Um, I had to audition well here when I came sure. and I was really proud of the job that I did because they were only looking to hire one more guy. They mm-hmm. already hired Dave mm-hmm. and Mike Hall had already been hired as well. So you ask about luck and fate, you also have to realize that they're both two lighter-haired guys. And so they weren't going to hire another blonde guy. And the one guy who I think they were maybe debating between hiring, opposed to me, was a gentleman by the name of Mickey York, who did most of his stuff up in Detroit. And Mickey also has lighter hair, blonde hair. And I I think when it came down to it, that was kind of the determining factor, because they don't want three guys with light hair as well. I mean, it, it was just, it was this convergence of all these different things happening at the right time. And at the same time, I'll be honest with you, I went back home and I told my wife I did a great job. I think I may get the offer. When the offer came, financially it made a ton of sense, but we were in a house that we loved, that we had just moved into for a year and a half. My son was two and a half months old. My wife had literally gone back to work after her three month break. That Monday, the day before I got the call on Tuesday, saying that I had 10 days to accept the job. So it, it wasn't a no-brainer, but we kind of put our heads together, and we did believe in destiny and fate. And we said, all this stuff is coming together. I think we have to take it. And, like, the whole part about the blonde hair, I got something I don't even think about is, yeah. <clears throat> you know, not coming up on TV. That's that's something that crazy. It's a determining factor, but you're totally right that that. I can picture that. Everybody's looking for diversity. I mean, and there's, you know, there are positives and there are negatives that come with that as well. Sometimes you're on the lucky end. Sometimes you're on the unlucky end. Right. So we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary here at BTN back in August. And I thought it was pretty cool and unique that you, Mike, Dave, and then even guys like Jerry and Howard have been here that whole time. I thought that's pretty unique, especially in the sports world. We see so much turnover. So I want you to get into your relationships a little bit with the people that have been here for 10 years, especially, you know, you guys are the big three. It's you, Mike, and Dave. How, how has your roles grown and how has your relationship kind of, you know, evolved over those years? You know, at first, I, I give Dave a ton of credit for the day that I came into audition. And I, I know that he was one of the guys that supported me when he had seen the tape because he got to see some of the work that was submitted along with the executive producer and some of the other team. And so I auditioned with him. He was the host that had already been hired. And I almost played the role of pseudo-analyst because he was just trying to check my Big Ten knowledge. But also, I was doing some highlights, reading along. And um, as a keepsake, as kind of a memento and a good luck charm, I brought with me a, what you know new parents would call a baby book. My wife had put together a small book of 20 to 30 photos of my son. And I, was, I kind of kept it near me while I was doing the audition. And we were in a break as the production team was kind of getting everything reset. And Dave said, let me give you a couple of pieces of advice. One, slow down. I can tell that, you know, you're a little bit excited and, you know, just kind of slow your pace down a little bit. And you got, you got a new kid in town. And he basically did it 
just to kind of make me feel comfortable, flip through some of the pictures. And I'll always remember going home and saying to my wife, like how much I appreciated it because it put me in a, just in a really calm, good spot. And, uh, you know, our relationship has been solid for 10 years. Same with Mike. Mike and I share a dressing room, (laughs) um, you know, so we've seen each other in in all states of repair over the course of the last decade. Um, You know, they've seen me welcome another kid to my family. I've seen Mike and his wife get married and and welcome a child into their family. So we've seen all of this. Uh, I mean, when Howard, you know, was first starting here, his youngest Houston was eight. And now he's, he's one of the top Dame, high right. school players in the country, going to play in the Under Armour All-Star Game, and he's a signee of Notre Dame. So, you know, uh, Jerry is a, a longtime friend of mine, not just because of the Italian bond, but we have that <laughs> as well. So, yeah, I mean, the relationships have been really special. I think that's a big reason why all of us have been here. And honestly, when you feel like you are at the grassroots and at the bottom level, that you came in and started something that a lot of people thought was going to fail. Right. And it gets to the level where it is at now, you feel really invested in the product. And I think that's another big reason why all of us have stuck around. Yeah, and I was going to follow up with that. I was going to follow up with that. Um, like you said, the, the investment that comes along with it. Because with all that 10-year stuff going on, did it give you an opportunity to kind of pause and reflect on everything that's gone on, what's been accomplished, and, and what you guys have been able to build here over the last decade? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think I try to do that every now and then because if I have a bad day, and, and you know, a, a bad day at work at the Big Ten Network watching sports and staying late is still a pretty good day. <laughs> and I think sometimes you're reminded of that when you talk to your friends who work in different businesses yeah. and, and, you know, are punching the time clock or working really hard labor jobs in construction and things like that, and you look back and you try to reflect on a regular basis. But yeah, to your point, at the 10-year anniversary, we did some full reflection. And honestly, the thing that I always think about was that first year and not knowing. Nobody knew. We didn't have the deals done. Mark Silverman, along with Jim Delaney, they were out on the road trying to get all the distribution done. And I remember reading articles about us and how we were refusing to kowtow to what Comcast wanted and how that deal wasn't going to get done. It was going to lead to the end of the network after one. And was there really a marketplace for what we were doing? And I remember having conversations with my wife. What are we, what are we doing? Right. We just left a stable environment in a great neighborhood. And suddenly we're here with an infant and this could collapse after. And I don't know that it ever got to the point where I truly believed it was going to. But those are always worries when we had never seen Chicago. We had no family here. We still don't. So we were out here on an island on our own. Um, So it made me reflect and think back to that and the difference of what I feel now and how stable the network is and and how well distributed it is. So, yeah, it it gave us a lot of pause, uh, the opportunity to reflect and truly to be proud, you know, of what this has become after a decade. Yeah, that leads into my, my next question. Um, this could be either personally or what the network and, and uh, your colleagues have accomplished as a whole, but what are you most proud of uh, in regards to what you've built in the last decade plus? I think a couple of things. I think, one, people look at us as Big Ten-centric because that's what we do, but not necessarily Big Ten homers. And I think that's really important. I think that... You need to be journalistically neutral, clearly, and I'm not trying to fool anyone. If a Big Ten team is playing against a non-Big Ten team in a big event, 
of course, I'm hoping for many different reasons that the Big Ten team sure. wins because I have relationships with those players and coaches because it's better for us as a network because it's better for the conference and, and the relationships that I have with the conference folks, with Jim Delaney and everybody that works so hard, Diane Dietz and everyone else at the conference offices. But at the same time, we try to be fair about what we see. We try not to be one-sided, and, and I think people have noticed that and, and appreciate that. I also think that... The amount of sweat equity that we've put in and the relationships that we've built. Because you don't just build relationships. These coaches are not going to all just say, oh, you guys work for the Big Ten Network. We love you. We'll give you everything you want. You have to invest your time and have to show that there's a reason for them to trust you. And it's those relationships, I think, that I'm as proud of as anything. As close as I am to the coaches that have been there, especially the coaches that have been here for a really long time. And the relationships that we have with guys like... Tom Izzo and Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State, Pat Fitzgerald and now Chris Collins at Northwestern. I mean, I could go on and on. Athletic directors as well, Barry Alvarez at Wisconsin and some of Mark Hollis at Michigan State and some of the great names that we work with. That's one thing that I think we're all really proud of. How about as far as the sports landscape as a whole goes? Is there any direction that the network or that the direction of how people consume sports media or how your job has changed? Anything that surprised you as you've gone along here? Yeah, you know, the one thing, this is really interesting to me because obviously social media is doing so much more than it did five, seven, certainly ten years ago when Mm -hmm. we started. I mean, nobody was worried about how many followers you had on Twitter when the network launched in 2007. At the same time, I'll say this, despite all the quote-unquote cord cutting and people going a la carte and watching on their mobile devices, at the end of the day, the product that we provide that draws the most eyeballs is live sporting right. events. Football, men's basketball, women's basketball, volleyball, some great hockey, obviously my true love. We do other Olympic sports as well. Those sports are best consumed, and 99% of true sports fans will tell you this, on a big screen TV, sitting on your couch, if you're watching at home and can't be at the game. And I don't think that that is going to change in the near future. People can say all they want about watching on your iPad and your mobile device, and I do it when I'm traveling and I do it when I have to, but I am like most red-blooded American sports fans. When you want to watch a game, you want to watch it on TV. And the quality of our broadcasts and now the amount of games that we broadcast... That is what our bread and butter is. I don't see that changing, at least not in the near future. Yeah, and it keeps it keeps live sports is what keeps the bundle together. And for me personally, what bothers me the most, and it kind of goes along with what you said about social media, when you're watching live sports and if you're watching on a stream, almost none of these streams are always caught up to live action. So right. if you're trying to follow on Twitter or follow like a lot of sports fans consume it nowadays – I just I can't get over personally, you know, not watching on a big screen yep. with when it's actually caught up to what's going on in my Twitter feed. So I think that's a huge deal as well, especially with the way people consume sports. Now. You know what drives me crazy is is and maybe people that you know don't know this that are, don't get to sit in the rooms where we get to sit and watch the game. So we get what's called the clean feed, right? So yeah. it's not what you're seeing if you're watching it on TV on your local BTN or ABC or ESPN affiliate. We're seeing it four to five seconds ahead because every clean feed comes in and then it has to be distributed back out with mm-hmm. the graphics and everything. And when I'm sitting at home now watching games, it's driving me crazy because I know I think to myself, this happened four seconds ago, man. There are guys in the network that know what happened and I don't. Does he score here? Does he not score here? 
So yeah, we are uh, we're four seconds ahead of you listening at home. That took me a while to get used to. Yeah, yep. just the clean. Yep. Yeah, and then someone at the next desk over will always have the live feed up, the quote live feed on, and so like the volumes will be right. coming in. It'll like, be, dude, change the channel. Four seconds come back. On. Come on. All right. So uh, moving on, I wanted to shift into some of the personal contributions that you've made here at the network that uh, people that watch will know you for and remember you for. And, and first and foremost. I got to mention a nickname that has taken off yeah, since yeah. Uh, in the last few years with one of our current Big Ten players, yeah. and that's Purdue's Dakota Mathias. He's their their sharpshooter, their three point man, and you so aptly named him the Midwestern Cowboy. So, one, had you ever assigned a nickname that stuck so well before? And two, how did that Midwestern Cowboy name come to be? You know, when Draymond Green was here. I was the first person to call him the Dancing Bear because he kind of looked like that guy in the body shape. And I, I remember watching a CBS broadcast, and I think Jim Nance used it. And, and I, so social media blew up. Oh, we love that nickname. And I thought to myself, what's going on here, man? <laughs> I was the first person to come up with this. But it never quite caught on on BTN the way that the Midwestern Cowboys caught on. I think that was because Dakota really liked it, and he embraced it. And the Purdue basketball program and their Twitter feed embraced it. And his teammates absolutely loved it. So, you know, it, it came about, and, the, and everybody will tell you that the best nicknames come about not because you thought about them, but because they just hit you. Organically. And, yeah, organically, to use a, a way overused TV term, <laughs> right? Um so he was shooting really well one night, and I just thought of his name. I'm like, Dakota Mathias. That just sounds like a guy who's in an old Western. Like, you could see Dakota Mathias being a guy that was played by John Wayne, right, in, right. like, one of those old odor movies. And uh, I thought to myself, it's kind of like a cowboy name. And, you know, he's from Ohio, but he's playing in Purdue. And I'm like, that's kind of Midwest. I'm like, he's a Midwestern cowboy. And it just it kind of seemed to make sense to me. And, and so I said it on air one night. And I think it was early in his sophomore year, maybe. So, you know, two or two and a half years ago. And uh, I forget who the analyst was. The analyst kind of looked at me and gave me a, a head nod as in that's, that one really works. And uh, I got a mention on Twitter a couple of days later from uh, a couple of Purdue basketball fans that said, we have no idea what that means, but we really like it. Uh-huh. And then Dakota liked it to the point where this year, and this is when I truly knew the nickname stick stuck. I got to my desk and I had a package, and it was from uh, Dakota's dad, Dan. And they had actually had T-shirts made up, and it's a great logo. It's a it's in black and gold, a basketball with a cowboy hat riding on the top of the basketball, and underneath it just says hashtag Midwestern Cowboy. And I wear it all the time. As a matter of fact, before I got changed into my dress shirt today, I was wearing it underneath my sweater. There you go. Yeah, I remember you were proud of that. Obviously, it's cool to see a. Hashtag or nickname yep. come to life, yep. and yeah, that's that's cool. To, you know, and he's a great when they kid. embrace it like that. He's a great guy uh-huh. too. I mean, you know, he's not just a really good player, but I've had the chance to talk to Dakota about it, and uh, he's a great young man. I, I happen to think I have a bet with a uh, not to be named analyst who works here at BTN that I think he will be on uh, an NBA roster next year as well. I, I remember last year, Dakota players. Dakota yeah. was really singing his praises, and yeah, yeah. I, I agree. He was a uh, super nice. Out in New York, we had him read some mean tweets a couple months ago. Yeah. He was all about it, and he took it really well. Great so personality. I, yeah, I enjoyed talking to him. Um, one more phrase that I've I've heard that has been attributed to you, 
I want you to confirm or deny. Uh, is it the thunder chunky phrase? Is that yeah? That's you as well. Yeah, that's me. The one-handed thunder chunky. Uh, that actually comes from if you go back and watch the opening to the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, mm-hmm. the old Will Smith TV show. There's graffiti as they're playing basketball, and in a small little area, it says Thunder Chunky. And I always thought to myself, Daryl Dawkins, the guy who Chalk, you chalk a Chalk's Thunder, thunder right? right? Yeah. Who would throw down so many nasty dunks? I thought to myself, man, Chocolate Thunder would love some Thunder Chunky, and it just <laughs> it just kind of stuck. And so one day, somebody threw down a nasty dunk, and I was like, oh man, that is thunderous. That is a Thunder Chunky. And again, it just kind of made sense. Now, for every one of those that work. I've probably thrown out 30 that absolutely stunk up the joint. So you stick with the ones that work and you ride them. I was going to ask, are there any more that I'm missing? Any ones that you've rolled out over the years that have I've had stuck some pretty, in the rotation? I've got some pretty bad ones. Okay. I've had some that have not stuck. Uh, you know, I once went with the um, You Must Respect My Authority from uh, South Cartman, Cartman from South yeah. Park. And social media people were just all over me. <laughs> First of all, you, you said it wrong. Second of all, your accent is terrible. Third of all, don't ever try to quote South Park. So that was short-lived. And the list of those, I could go on and on forever. I think I heard Mike uh, last year when the Catch Me Outside, how about that girl was yep. blowing up social media. He said he, he was calling a post-up or some sort of dunk or something like that. He said, Catch Me Inside, how about that? And I appreciated it. But I could also see that being one that got some blowback. Yeah, you also <laughs> you can't be too inside, right? I mean, like, if it's really clever, it's clever, but you don't want to be so clever mm-hmm. that it goes over everybody's head because then it's only funny to you. Right. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, on top of the slogans, the, the catchphrases that every sports anchor has, you know, everyone has their own style as well. Mm-hmm. You bring your own style that, you know, Mike has his own, Dave has his own, and everyone has their own little flair, but rumor has it, or legend has it, that you started the whole kind of trend that sprung up this decade of the you know more casual shoes being brought <laughs> onto the the TV set, the sports TV set, and you, and you watch ESPN these days, you watch BTN obviously, any sports network, and I'm sure you could watch news networks as well. The shoes are no longer as dressy as they were yep. you know in previous years, previous decades, and you currently are rocking uh, a pair of casual. They're not quite yep. tennis shoes, but uh, they look like there's some Echoes. Yeah, Echo Soft Sneakers, they're called. Yeah, yeah, so is it true you started this? Did you start this whole wave of the sports broadcasting shoe game revolution? I don't know that I can be credited with starting it because I'm sure there's somebody out there that uh, would claim to be a bit earlier, but I would clearly like to say that I was early in the game. I was early in the uh, in the sock and shoe game, uh, and it's something that I'm proud of. I- I'm not... You know, when, when you talk about styles of people, whether it's fashion or, or personality-wise, I'm never a guy who, I have a couple of nicknames and a couple of catchphrases, but if you were to ask me, what do you want people to think of you mm-hmm. as when you're a sportscaster? I want people to think I'm solid. Sure. And, and I know that doesn't sound sexy, um, but I, I'm not trying to be, you know, a really funny guy. I think Mike is more comedic than I am, and he does a really good job at it. Um, I'm trying not, I'm not as statistically driven. I mean, Dave, the amount of knowledge and research that he does to have every stat from 100 years ago in his mind blows me away. I I try to be kind of somewhere in the middle and solid. And so if you're going to be that guy, which I try to be, you also have to have something that makes you stand out because you can't just be a down the middle of the road kind of guy. So I like to think that the socks and shoes help. Uh, I like to try to mix up the shirts and ties. 
uh, as often as possible. And not that, you know, fashion is going to be the driving force, but what we do obviously is a visual medium as well. So uh, one of the important things, but not the most important part of what we do. Yeah, I was going to ask you next about the, the sock game, because right now yep. you've got some colorful camos yep. on, and you always seem to be on TV with, with something fresh. So, you know, did the, did the sock uh, wardrobe choices kind of follow the shoes, or was that a, was that a decision that you made? You know, I'm just going to revamp the whole – start at the bottom and, and work my yeah, way. Yeah, I actually went sock first. Okay. So I was sock shoe, sock shoe guy before they ever did those on the newlywed game questions. No, I uh, – I did socks first. I had done socks dating back to my time in Greensboro just because I love different socks. And my wife brought me home a couple of really funky pair early, and I absolutely fell in love with them. And then the uh, the sneaker shoes kind of followed. I just don't feel like, first of all, I feel like wingtips are remarkably uncomfortable. And, and I'm not a loafer guy. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to find something in between, and I walked in a Nordstrom, I don't know, 8, 10 years ago, and I saw a pair of sneakers uh, that were kind of like the ones I'm wearing now, and I was wearing a suit, and I put them on, and the guy, one of the shoe salesmen, said, man, I, I never thought about putting those two together, but it looks great. And I wasn't even trying to put them together on purpose. I was just trying them on, and it happened to be the suit that I had on at the time. So I uh, I bought a pair, and I while I don't have an Echo sponsorship, I own these in about six different colors. Hey, maybe we can get a, a little cross-sponsorship going, you know, uh, I can home, jump on exactly. the uh, home, exactly. podcast, yeah, and uh, Rick can pick up a little extra check on the side. Um yeah, but I was going to say, like, I was watching SportsCenter the other day, and it was probably one of their NFL analysts they had on. I can't remember who it was, but he had just straight-up basketball shoes on. Like, there, it's, yes, it's like, I've seen it's that as well. completely jumped the shark now where it's like, there's There's a limit, right? Like, I, right. I think TV has become, clearly it's more casual mm-hmm. than it was in the Walter Cronkite days yeah. than it was in, like, the Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw days. I mean, you see more and more shows... And I think a lot of that is a proliferation of the radio shows that have turned into TV because then you're taking a radio show and... Dan Patrick show, for example, you do it in his basement. The guy's not going to get dressed up in a suit. Right. He's going to be on TV, but it's going to be more casual look. And I think sometimes the fans respond a little bit better to casual because then they can relate. Then you are their buddy sitting in their living room, drinking a beer with them, watching sports, as opposed to the guy kind of regurgitating highlights. All right, more on uh, your kind of personal tendencies that I've, that I've noticed. Just, you know, I'm on social media a lot here, and we have all you guys on our on our tweet deck and all our anchors, you know, mm-hmm. so we see everything you tweet every day. And a tweet popped up a couple weeks ago where you decided to uh, to drag a certain fan that happened to stumble into your mentions yep. on some uh, on some reckless games. And, you, you know, you had to say, listen up here, Skippy, this is why you're wrong and this is why I'm right. So my question is, why was Skippy, first of all, the go-to one? Why was that first in your holster when you had to expose somebody on Twitter? There are a couple of nicknames out there that I think are sneakily nasty without being demeaning, mm-hmm. and Skippy is one of them. It, it kind of it's it's almost like you know the little brother is Skippy, the yeah. guy who you beat up at the playground, but not too bad. Just kind of put him in his place. That guy is Skippy, and that particular tweet was an insult of an interview that I had done, and the interview subject. Didn't mind the question. As a matter of fact, chuckled at the question and then gave me a great response. It was in relation to something that had happened less than 24 hours before. So as I said in the tweet, it was timely, it was topical, and it elicited a great response. So you know, next time I'm looking for some interview help, I'll give you a call. Are you still at 1-800-HASHTAG? I have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about. 
So when you go on Twitter and you want to interact with fans, especially if you want to reply to someone who's being nasty or critical, I think you have to have a couple of you have to have a couple of rules. Number one, any hashtag you use, you have to remember can come back to bite you. Right. So you need to be smart and judicious about using those hashtags, and you can't be so demeaning that you're going to a lose viewership or get in trouble at your place of work because. You know, I'm at BTN Rick Pizzo, mm-hmm. so I'm well aware that that's not just my personal Twitter page. That is associated with the Big Ten Network, and I only engage with fans in that manner to, to try to make a point when someone goes what I think is above and beyond the line, and I'll never get down to, to their level, you know, they go low, we go high type thing. But I do think it's important enough for you to put out there you're wrong, but more importantly, here's why you're wrong. And that's what I try to do when I engage with like that on Twitter. Right. I think it's I think that's a perfect example of, of when to kinda, you know, remind people that, you know, like you don't need to question, you know, your professionalism or something like that. Or the, the funny one that I that I always have a laugh at is when people because my DMs are open, so people will DM me saying, I'm unfollowing you because of this reason and sometimes it's not even related to sports. And I'm like, first of all, just unfollow. Why are you telling right. me you're unfollowing me? It's, it's it's silly. Like those are the kind of things that I think are that amuse me, but also I'm just kind of making me scratch my head. Yeah, the other one too that blows me away is when people, if I tweet something that's non-sports related. Yeah. You know the stick to sports thing. That's kind of what I was talking. I, about. Yeah, yeah, I I just I just don't get it. It's I'm a human being. This is not my life. This is my profession. It's a very important part of my life. But if I want to rank where sports is in terms of importance in my life, it's not in the top five. So I am going to have thoughts on, I was a political science major um, with a specialty in constitutional law. So I'm going to have a lot of thoughts about the political world and especially the Supreme Court and legal decisions and things like that. And if you don't want to hear those and if you don't want to be interested in those, you can unfollow me. Like I, I truthfully really don't care I love for people to follow me. I think I have some interesting stuff to say. I think I have interesting interactions with people. But if you don't want to listen to what I have to say, then great, turn me off. Yeah, yeah, that's the beauty of it. And the the most extreme one that, that really made me scratch my head was somebody DM'd me because of a post I liked, which now is showing up in people's feeds. Like if you like something, it, it gives random notifications right. to anybody that this so-and-so liked this. And they're like, I don't follow you for you to like this. I'm like, it's my personal account. Like, yeah, what? like uh, whatever. The, the hardest one for me, honestly, Alex, to deal with was during the whole Jerry Sandusky scandal. Sure. You know, I spent so much time at Penn State, and I had so many people, you know, tweeting at me that I, I was handling it wrong and that, you know, by supporting the players that were there or by not being – meaner or ignoring the players that were there that I was in some way shape or form condoning what Jerry Sandusky had done and you know there there comes a point when on social media I like to follow I have very thick skin so you know I'll search my name knowing that there are going to be both positive and negative thoughts there and it doesn't bother me because that's what I signed up for if I don't want to deal with it I won't search my name um, but then there also becomes a point where you just need to stop reading, sure. where you just need to be able to say, you know what, you could say anything you want, and it's not worth replying to you. I'll just block you or mute you, or at the end of the day, I just won't pay attention. Sure, and you don't want to be oversensitive. I think some sports personalities get really oversensitive. Yeah, you can't. You, you get engaged with once, and they you block don't want people. to get into a huge. I don't yeah, understand the people that the people that are public figures that just go blocking like crazy. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, real quick, one more 
follow up to the uh, the nicknames. I want if there's any other ones on your list b- beyond Skippy. I was thinking like Sparky's a good one. Sparky's a fantastic Buster, one. Buster, I like Pal. Buster. Uh, I Pal's like Pal. Good. Yeah, Pal's Chief, a solid one. Chief Chief's thing? not bad. I had a, I had a buddy in in uh, high school who was Chief. Like that was his actual okay, nickname. So it can be endearing. Too, so right? yeah, exactly. It can be you know it can be uh, yeah. Sparky's a good one. I like that one. Spike. Spike. All right. Spike Albright was the last guest in this podcast. So uh, bringing it full circle for yeah, you, man. Exactly. All right, uh, so moving on a little bit, we'll, we'll talk some actual sports on here. Um, we won't just talk sports journalism, sports careers. So you're a New York guy. We got the new uh, Big Ten tournament out in New York City this year yep. at Madison Square Garden. Thoughts on the move out there? Are you excited that it's going to be in a new place? I mean, obviously it was in D.C. last year, so the East Coast is kind of familiar with this, and the Midwestern fans that were up in arms about it probably are a little more used to it by now. Yep. So what are your thoughts on it being out in New York City? You know, the first time that we did the Super Saturday, the showcase, the basketball hockey yeah. doubleheader out there, I was a little weary of what the New York response was going to be like. And that first year, the Penn State-Michigan was the basketball game. I mean, the fan bases were unbelievable because Michigan is just so massive and they have oh, such yeah. a fan base in New York and obviously Penn State being fairly close geographically. I'm curious. I'm fascinated as to how it will be received this year not because it's the Big Ten in New York, but because of the week that it falls on. Because with the Big East having the traditional tournament week and the Big Ten doing it the week before, I'm really intrigued to see how that affects television interest, how that affects fans in the seats. I think it is important. It's an important message to send to that area with Rutgers now in the fold and with Penn State looking to get a little bit more geographic support. I think it is important for the Big Ten to live in New York with, with an office there in New York. I'm just going to reserve judgment on what it's going to fully be like all the way until I get there and see it because we've never known, not just New York, but we've never known a full date change to play this tournament during the week when typically it's mid-majors and smaller conferences only playing their tournament during that week. Sure, I do think it'll help the Big Ten dominate kind of the headlines that we highlight. And it helps us too because we have so much more of an opportunity to do live game broadcasts. Right. Um, You mentioned the Super Saturday and you're a hockey guy. Yep. How I'll, I'll dive back into the sports journalism question or line of questioning uh, briefly here. How have you really taken on the hockey analyst role here at BTN? Because I know you've really led the charge there. Yeah, it's been awesome. I mean, when the league was formed, there was you want to talk about blowback and you know pushback, especially from the Minnesota fan base, which is a fan base that I respect and admire so much because. They are so passionate and love their gopher hockey team. Um, and there you know, were long-standing traditions, whether it was with Minnesota and Wisconsin, the WCHA, or the rest of the member schools in the CCHA, but it made a ton of sense with Penn State gaining Division One status. And, I mean, a program that in five years basically became the number one team in the country right. at one point last year. It just made sense for the league to be formed. And I know there are still many people who do not believe it makes sense. But if you ask the schools, it made sense for them from a financial standpoint, from a broadcast standpoint. I mean, Minnesota was an anomaly. Those fans could see their games anytime that they wanted anyway. But for the rest of the league, and now the rest of the country, you are getting more and more national exposure. College hockey is always going to be a niche sport. Listen, it's my love. It's my passion. I would embrace everybody else jumping into the pool and believing that it's a great sport. I know that's not going to happen. It's never going to get the kind of fan base that basketball or football get. 
And I think anything that you can do to increase the exposure of a sport like that, and that's what the formation of the Big Ten Conference did, it's positive for the sport. And I know there's a lot of disagreement, but I, I stand by that. Another uh, niche sport is golf, and I know you're a big yes. golf guy. And being an Illinois grad, you know, golf has been kind of our front porch yeah, sport now. For, exactly. Yep. And it's one of those things where, you know, the blogs and people on Twitter will joke around and say, yeah, Illinois is a golf, golf school, school and stuff like that. <laughs> and which is like, it, it's, I'm happy, I'm thrilled for their success. I follow them when uh, every spring, but it also kind of drives home the stake more that, you know, it, it, football and basketball have sure. not been much to speak of lately. But it's been fun to follow Illinois golf. I mean, they, and, and I don't, I'm not a huge golf fan, but every year when that, tournament swings around and they get that national exposure it's and the big awesome. 10 too. i mean purdue was, was in it last yep. year um yep. get into get into your golf coverage a little bit especially at a time in spring when not a whole lot else is going on yeah you know it's, it's awesome for as long as we've been here and the start of the big 10 match play that was a great idea by jim delaney that once the ncaa went to a match play format to determine its national team champion the Big Ten was a little bit behind the eight ball because you're already delayed in relation to Southern schools who are playing outside year-round. I mean, if you're at Illinois, if you're at any of the Big Ten schools, you're spending a large portion of your practice time during the winter indoors. So the match play every year in February, and it has been at some phenomenal places uh, down in Florida. Been at uh, PGA National. We've been at the concession uh, you know, most recently in, in Palm Coast at Hammock Beach Resort, and we'll go there again in February. And I've, I've handled that coverage every year with Eric Ciotti, former Northwestern player and assistant coach, and that's an absolute blast. Um, you know, Illinois a couple of years ago decided to, to not take part in that as they continue to kind of build their brand nationally, but that continues to be a success. And then our, our second major broadcast of the year from the men's side is the championships where Illinois is obviously dominated and it's been so much fun to watch individual players as well i mean you could see thomas peters is a great example guy comes over from belgium mike small recruited him he wins basically everything that he's involved in in the big 10 and you could just see and then the next thing you know two years later he's part of the european Ryder cup right. team mm-hmm. bursting onto the scene as a star who europe believes is going to be one of the stalwarts of their team for the next 10 15 20 years and, you know, Thomas Dietrich, another Belgian, won an event on the Challenge Tour a couple of years ago, got himself moved up to the full European Tour. Obviously, you look at guys that are already on tour, like Steve Stricker and mm-hmm. DA Points. Uh, I mean, it's pretty unbelievable when you think about what that, Luke Guthrie's another guy, what that program has built over the years, and what yeah. Mike Small has done since being there. The amazing thing about Mike, too... I don't want to waste all this time on golf, but you know you got me going on it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a couple more <laughs> minutes. Means, the means. amazing thing about Mike is he does all this from a coaching perspective. He barely has time to practice, and then he goes out there and right. he's one of the top playing PGA professionals in the country. Anyway, he's always in the mix for the PGA Professional Championship at the end of the year, and not only that. He's just a great dude. I mean, I love running into Mike and all, all the Big Ten golf coaches. You know, I consider every single one of them, you know, friends of mine. Yeah, it's crazy what he's done, especially, you know, in the cold weather, like you, like you mentioned. And I'm glad you brought up Steve Stricker because I, I know myself and my roommate, we always get worked up about this because he's a big golf fan. And it was a few years back, I think it was 2012 or something like that, and, and Stricker's an Illinois grad. And he's a Wisconsin guy, though. He's from Wisconsin. He's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wool badger, but he played golf yes. in Illinois. Yeah. He was at the Wisconsin-Illinois basketball game, and I think he was in all red. I think he was in a uh, Wisconsin hat, Wisconsin Probably shirt. Probably sitting next they to showed him North. On, they showed, on, next to North, they showed him on BTN. And Wisconsin was, I think, 
beating Illinois probably by 20, and they showed <laughs> uh, Stricker and BTN wearing all Wisconsin. That was just the final nail in the coffin. For You know, that was the salt in the wound yep. for all of Illinois Twitter that day, I remember, and it was just – it was one of those funny moments, but um, he does always. I will say he does the, always support he Illinois does. golf. And the next time, the next time, I think he was at a game or whatever that he had the split. He had the Illinois hat because yeah, right, he definitely yeah. heard about it. So I thought that was a funny thing that uh, I talk about with my roommate. Like we bring it up, and my yep. roommate's always just like, "I can't believe he did that." So it's a funny. Uh, yeah, it's a great. I'm so glad. That's one of the things I'm so glad that uh, the network. I mean, it's not a cheap endeavor to cover a golf tournament, right? You know, and, and we are well aware of the fact that it doesn't draw a ton of eyeballs, but it's really important to the schools. It's really important to the program. I'll give Jim Delaney and the conference a ton of credit because it's really important to them. And man, I love those trips twice a year. So much fun to go cover those two events. Awesome. Um, Before we wrap up, I do want to touch on some of the football bulls that are going on right now. We're in bowl season and then we'll wrap up. Our final question will be about kind of a 2017 wrap since we're at the end of the year here. But first off, we got bowl season going on. Uh, we're taping this Thursday, so we had a couple of pretty exciting games last night, Iowa and Purdue, so a good start for the conference to go 2-0. Michigan State tonight, and by the time this drops, probably Friday or Saturday, um, a lot of the, book, the bowl games will already be in the books. So first of all, if you can you remember just with the lack of you know significant games that really mean anything beyond the, game, the bowl game itself, without a college football playoff berth, can you remember a quieter bowl season around here? It has been quiet. You know why it's been weird? Because they're also kind of spread out, right? Usually you're building up to January 1. Right. There's one Big Ten bowl game on January the 1st. It's crazy. Uh, obviously, Ohio State and the Big Ten, Wisconsin, one of those teams wanted to be part of the college football playoff. We would have loved to have followed one of those teams in the college football playoff, especially since the Rose Bowl is one of the national semifinals this year. It didn't happen. Uh, the three New Year's Six games are awesome. I mean, the matchups, I think Penn State-Washington is a sneaky good matchup. I love Wisconsin going, quote-unquote, on the road in a neutral site game to play Miami in the Orange Bowl. And, of course, Ohio State-USC, it's like you took the Rose Bowl and just moved it to Dallas for the Cotton Bowl. But, yeah, to your point, it, it is kind of a quieter bowl season. I think that changes a little bit on Friday. I think once yeah. Ohio State and USC kick off, it changes a little. There's a buildup, but I will say – Give Iowa a ton of credit. They had no business winning that game when you look at the stats. Uh, that's but, what Iowa does, though. That's, but like they, that's, thing. that's yeah. how Iowa wins. It's exactly right. And uh, what Jeff Brom did at Purdue this year, and the fact that Elijah Sindelar throws four touchdowns and goes for 400 yards on a torn ACL, and that they come back to find a way to win after giving up a big lead, uh, man, the future is bright with Purdue. So league's off to a great start. I mean, I was going to bed last night. Uh, Iowa game was over. Purdue game was just about to finish. And I thought to myself, if they can win this game, I would not be at all surprised if the league has a chance to go 7-1, and one, if not 8-0, and oh, because the mat- I think the matchups, I mean, Northwestern Kentucky is a great matchup for the Big Ten, in my opinion. Wisconsin-Miami is a great matchup. Tonight's Thursday night's game, Michigan State, Washington State, it scares me a little just because of the contrast in styles. Right. But I think if Michigan State can punch them in the mouth, they have a great chance. So it could be one of those blessings in disguise. Nobody in the playoff, but a great end-of-the-year bowl result for the league. Yeah, Purdue's played in two games this year, and I think have been probably my top five of fun games to watch this year. The one against Louisville was a lot of fun awesome. to watch. Last night was unbelievable, and I had a great time watching it. And you mentioned Iowa, who kind of finally got off the mat. They hadn't won a bowl since since 2010. They broke that skid. Kind of leads into my next question. And like I said, this will be released. Who knows how many of the games will be have been in the books? It'll probably be Saturday at the latest. But 
Are there any programs you think in the Big Ten, and I think Iowa would be up there, even though these games don't technically matter, Mm -hmm. you know, in in terms of moving on to anything else, are there any programs that stand to gain more or stand to lose more by the result in their their bowl game? So, you know, if, if Michigan... Loses or wins is, sure. is a you know is, does it take some heat off them or, or apply more heat? Is there which programs do you think have the most to gain or lose in these next few days here? You know, I actually think, and I said this on on uh, Sirius XM Radio this morning. I was talking with Chris Childers, who I chat with also weekly. Also, guest of the show. He's yeah. great, great dude too. Um, and I said to him, I said this actually, I think to Howard Griffith on our BTN Live on Wednesday. I thought the Purdue game meant more for that program, and this is before they won, than any other game could mean for anybody else in the Big Ten because you have the understandable hiccups of year one, the loss to Rutgers, which Jeff Brom couldn't explain, and the way they gave away a game against Nebraska they probably should have won, and yet they're still in a position to get to the postseason. And they beat an in-state rival who was also playing for the postseason to do that in Indiana. So you're Purdue, and now you're in the postseason. You're playing against an Arizona team that's lost three out of four, and you're trying to keep some of this momentum going. You know your quarterback's going to be back next year. You know DJ Knox is going to be back next year. you got a ton of talent. Marcus Bailey's coming back on the defensive side next year. You have all this recruiting momentum. You have facilities upgrades. All this stuff is going in the right direction, but nobody really saw you nationally during the year, right? I mean, I think that's a fair thing to say. Nobody focused on Purdue. Yes, there was a lot of talk among us, and maybe in the Midwest, Jeff Brom's doing a great job. But until Brom's name got thrown around for Tennessee or perhaps other openings, nobody really, last night was their, op- their chance on the national stage. It was entertaining. It was stick around and watch for 60 minutes football, and they won. I, I think that win and what Jeff Brom can do building towards next season, I'm telling you, right, I, Purdue is not ready to win the Big Ten championship next year, but this program and the difference from three years ago to now and the belief of that program and the culture that he's instilled already, unbelievable change. Tom Deanhart wrote this, and, and I'm not sure how much uh... – I agree with it, but he said that Ohio State, in winning a bowl game, you know, would kind of prove that they belonged in the, in the CFP. Beating USC in the Cotton would prove they belong, and it would help kind of erase some of those, uh, you know, hurt feelings, sure. hurt pride from last year in the, in the 31-0 blowout against Clemson. Do you agree with that? I'm, I, I wasn't sure if I could uh, – where to comment out on that. Yeah, I argument. don't. I don't think that it – I really don't. I, listen, USC got no respect. They're, they finished eighth. Right in, in the final CFP rankings. Right. I mean, not that the committee is the end-all, be-all, but even after <coughs> winning the Pac-12, you finish eighth. Um, I think Ohio State will come out motivated for a couple of reasons, because it's the last game for JT Barrett and Billy Price and the seniors on this team who have meant an awful lot to this program. James Laurinaitis, part of one of the greatest senior classes, said that he thought that this senior class should be considered among the best in Ohio State history. So they'll be motivated. And you look back to a few years ago when they were disappointed that they got sent to the Fiesta Bowl to play Notre Dame. They didn't look disappointed. They were really impressive in beating Notre Dame in that game. So I think they'll be motivated. I just don't think it really proves one thing or the other because no matter what happens, unless they thump USC by 30 and Alabama gets crushed by Clemson, which I think could happen, then maybe you make the call, oh, Ohio State should have been the team and should have, would have, could have. At this point, it, it doesn't really matter. I think they're more focused already or they will be as soon as the final horn blows on that game on next sure. year 
and getting Dwayne Haskins and the rest of that team in 2018 ready to play and ready to get back to the playoffs. Sure. So no matter the New Year's Day result, the Outback Bowl result, this question I think will kind of stand up beyond that. Are you buying into all the noise that is the, the restlessness with Harbaugh and Michigan, you know, with him not being able to beat Ohio State and with the bad record against rivals in Michigan State? Yep. Are you buying into any of that concern? Because for me, like, you know, I can see where Michigan fans might be kind of like, okay, let's let's get this thing rolling now. But at the same time, you know, they had a great defense, and, and they really just need a quarterback, a solid presence under center. And you know he's going to recruit. You know that they, they have all the tools and the facilities. And it seems like he's bought in there 100%. So I'm just curious if you're, you know, buying into kind of that restlessness that has come from both, you know, fan, some fans yep. and from the national media yep. as well. Yeah, I Listen, I understand the fans because you got your guy, right, mm-hmm. three years ago. I mean, you did everything you had to do. You paid him $8 million a year. You had every single alum making phone calls, bringing him back to Ann Arbor. And he's been successful. I mean, 10 wins and then 10 wins. Now a chance to win another bowl game on January 1st this year. A lot of programs will take that. Without question. Yeah. But you haven't beaten Ohio State. You've lost to Michigan State, right, two of those three years. So what makes the fan base happy a Big Ten championship and a trip to the college football playoff. And I think that that is a reasonable expectation when you consider the resources that they're given, the facilities that they have, the recruiting that they've done, the position that they're in, the support that they have from not just the fan base, but from everybody in the administration. Do I do I buy into you know I think Harbaugh said it's like warmed up oatmeal yeah, all I saw the that today. you know rumors of him returning to the NFL. Do I think that that's a possibility in the distant future? Yes, if it didn't work in the next five years or so. Do I think it's a possibility in the next couple of years? Absolutely not. I think he is in it for the haul. He is going to make sure he does everything he possibly can. He cares about this program. He has blood and sweat and tears for the last what. 30 years plus invested in this program. So this is not going to be a short-term thing. That being said, I do understand the fans' frustration. All right, last topic, Rick. Since we're a couple days away from the new year, from 2018, I want to get your thoughts on or your reflections on the past year. And I know, like, working at a college sports network, I was home the other day and we were watching SportsCenter. They were running down the top plays of, mm-hmm. uh, of the year. My dad's like, do you guys do anything like that at BTN? I was like, well, kind of, but it doesn't really make sense because, you know, there's last season that still happened in 2017. Right, we're on the academic calendar. Yeah, exactly, academic calendar. So it doesn't really make sense. So, you know, but what are some stories or themes, if you think back in that last calendar year, or or athletes or or players you'll look back on and remember and associate with with 2017? Does anything jump out? Yeah, we talked about New York earlier. I was at Madison Square Garden uh, this year for the NCAA tournament Mm -hmm. and saw that amazing Wisconsin-Florida Sweet 16 game that was won apparently twice. You thought Wisconsin had won it, and then Florida won it, and it was, I mean, the back and forth was just one of the most amazing things. And throughout my broadcasting career, I've done a lot of, what I would call difficult interviews. I don't think I've ever interviewed players and felt worse about it than I did after that game. Yeah. Because you had Nigel Hayes and Bronson Koenig, and Koenig was limping around. He wasn't healthy at the end of that game, wasn't on the floor. Those guys just played the Zach Showalter. They just played their last game. And to lose it in that fashion and – 
to their credit, and uh, Patrick Herb, the wonderful sports information director in charge of their basketball program, got it, getting me the interviews in the green room, and, and the players, because they're classy and they understood they had to do it, fighting through to give the interviews, that, that will always, that's what makes it human, right? I mean, from the fan base, from the outside, oh, these guys, they lost, they, they, this team, but, you know, but when you get into there and you get into the locker room and you see what, what it means to these guys and how much it hurts, uh, that that's something that will always stick with me. And uh, the fact that it happened in New York in Madison Square Garden, knowing that the Big Ten tournament was going to be there next year, I think from 2017, that that's the lasting memory that will, unfortunately, it's a sad one, but it's the one that will definitely resonate with me the longest. All right, well, you mentioned you've done a lot of difficult interviews. I'm curious to, once you reflect on this and listen to it, where this falls on that that scale, but um, you yeah, know. it's probably going to be the greatest one. That's <laughs> the questions were definitely the greatest that I was ever asked. That's for sure. Hey, I can take pride in that, and I appreciate you coming on, Rick. It was a lot of fun. We went about an hour, a little longer than we expected. Perfect. But hey, you I got uh, nothing to do. No, you yeah, you you filled the time uh, well. A lot of good stories, a lot of good stuff, and uh, look forward to hopefully picking your brain, getting you on again here soon. Awesome, thanks, Alex. Appreciate, appreciate it. Thanks again to Rick for joining me, and thanks to everyone out there as always for listening. As you can probably tell, Rick's just a cool dude uh, who's really versatile and good at what he does, so glad I was able to get him on for an hour or so, learn more about him, pick his brain, and get his thoughts on stuff, so hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And as we put football season behind us here, I'm going to hopefully try and do a football wrap-up episode at some point with a look at the whole season and uh, what it all meant since we did get all those football focus episodes on earlier in the season. Kind of put a bow on that. If we uh, get to it, it would be... I think productive um, and then as we get into basketball season I'll try and do a weekly at least one weekly episode as well which will ideally mainly focus on hoops and also to help fill your basketball appetite don't forget we do have Andy Katz working at BTN and he is doing a podcast for us here under the BTN umbrella as well during basketball season that is called the Big Ten Basketball Podcast the B1G Basketball Podcast so Go subscribe to that as well, and we'll have you covered from all angles here at our podcast network at BTN. And with that, we will put a bow on 2017. Thanks, as always, to Wes White for producing, and we will talk to you in 2018 on the Take 10 Podcast.